Um, I, I've got some things stirring around in my heart. It's um, uh, well, the best way I know to describe it is uh, you ladies know when you put a big pot of soup on the stove, you put all the ingredients in there. Uh, everything's there, and everything is is uh, that the that you want the soup to have is is part of the mix and everything. The only thing left to do is for it to simmer and cook long enough to make soup. Um, you know, if your kids come into the door too soon and they're hungry and they say, Mama, can I have some soup? Well, it's not soup yet. It's got all the right stuff, but it's not soup yet. I feel that way about what I want to share tonight. It's, uh, there are things that are stirring around on the inside of me, and, uh, and it hadn't made soup yet. So I don't know exactly what we're going to do and where we're going to go with this, but uh, I want to share something with you that... Uh, um, Well, such as I have, give I thee. Proverbs chapter 4, verse 22. Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. Now, this word issue means boundary. Keep your heart. We know when the Bible is speaking of the heart, most often it's talking about the spirit, and it certainly is in this case. It says keep your spirit, maintain your spirit, guard your spirit with all diligence, because out of it, out of your spirit, are the issues or the boundaries of life. Now, in Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 7, I'm going to take a verse of Scripture out of context. You'll see that it's uh, appropriate for us to do it, even by the Scripture that we have already seen, and there are many other Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, that we could confirm it. But Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 7, it says, For as he, any man, thinketh in his heart, so is he. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Now, this word thinketh is interesting because it, it literally means to act as a gate, to open or act as a gatekeeper. For a, as a man thinketh in his heart, it's, uh, it can also be translated reckon or figure as in uh, an accounting term, to use an accounting term. In other words, if we were to translate it in modern, uh, modern English, it would uh, translate something like this, or could be at least. As a man decides to see himself, so is he. As a man decides to see himself. Now, you can see that that agrees completely with Proverbs chapter 4, verse 22. Keep your heart, your spirit with all diligence. Anytime the Bible tells you to be diligent about something, it sounds to me like it's pretty important. Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flow the issues or the boundaries of life. You set the boundaries for your life. Let me uh, read to you a, um, uh, an account. There was an article in Reader's Digest back in 1991, August of 1991, and it was entitled, Patient Knows Best. And, it, and here's, uh, here's the important part of it. A person's answer to the question, is your health excellent, good, fair, or poor, is a remarkable predictor of who will live or die over the next four years according to new findings. Now, these are 25 years old, and so I don't know if they've done any uh, uh, follow-up studies on it or not, but this was the case at least at that point in time. A study of more than 2,800 men and women, 65 and older, found that those who rate their health poor are four to five times more likely to die in the next four years than those who rate their health excellent. This was the case even if examinations showed that the respondents to be in comparable health. So in other words, the study is, is, is identifying, it doesn't matter how healthy somebody is, it is determined by how healthy they think they are, specifically how healthy they say they are. These findings are supported by a review of five other large studies totaling 23,000 people, which reached similar conclusions according to a certain sociologist at Rutgers University and a, an epidemiologist 
at uh, Yale University School of Medicine who co-authored this new study. People that have an image of themselves being in poor health will talk about poor health. And then their body responds to the words that they speak. Now, folks, here's the, here's the thing that, uh, that I want to get to. As you see yourself, what you see yourself or the way that you see yourself is the way that you'll talk about yourself. And the way you talk about yourself sets the boundaries for who you will be. In other words, you'll live up to or down to whatever you say about yourself. And what you say about yourself is a result of what you see. It's a result of what you see. Now, let me confirm this to you. Turn with me over to second, uh, or uh, third John, verse 2. Third John only has one chapter. John is writing, some people say, well, this is a personal note to an individual, and it doesn't belong to everybody in the church. But if so, why did the Holy Ghost save it for us? And if John is writing by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, notice what he says. He said, Beloved, I wish, the word wish is also the word pray. It's the word translated pray throughout the New Testament. So if John is praying, inspired by the Holy Ghost, and writing to this individual, Gaius, uh, by, the inspira- by the inspiration of the Holy Ghost, then unless God is a respecter of persons, which the Bible says he's not, then God would want or wish or pray or direct somebody to pray the same thing for you and me as he would for somebody else, wouldn't he? In other words, this isn't exclusive to an individual. This is for everybody. So notice what God is inspiring John to say that his will is. Beloved, I wish or pray above all things that thou mayest prosper and be in health even as. Everybody say even as. Even as your soul prospers. Even as your soul prospers. Even as your soul prospers. Now what's he saying? He's saying prosperity certainly including financial well-being, but not exclusive to that. That's not what prosper means. It means be, uh, be abundant in every area of life, not in every area of life, not just finances. But to prosper and to be in health is dependent on the condition of your soul. It's, conditioned on the, it's dependent on the condition of your soul. Now, did you hold your finger back in uh, Proverbs chapter 4? Let me show you what, what uh, the writer of Proverbs tells us as inspired by the Holy Ghost about how to keep our heart with all diligence. You know these verses of Scripture, or at least I hope you do. We talk about them a lot. My son, verse 20, my son, attend to my words. Incline your ear unto my sayings. Let them not depart from before thine eyes. Keep them in the midst of thine heart, for they are life. Unto those that find them are and health or medicine to all their flesh. Then verse 22 says, keep your heart with all diligence for out of it flow the issues of the boundaries of life. In other words, he's saying in verses 20, 21 and uh, 22, how to fulfill verse 23, keeping your heart with all diligence, setting the boundaries of your life, setting the boundaries of your life. Now notice it says, the word of God is life to those that find it and health or medicine to all their flesh. What's medicine? You go to the doctor and the doctor gives you medicine. What is it for? Well, it's medical science way through physical means of treating the symptoms that you're exhibiting in your body. In other words, medical science tries to help the healing process through physical means. But God's word is not a physical means. God's word, which is health, 
or medicine to all our flesh is a spiritual means of bringing about a healing result. It's a spiritual means of bringing about a healing result. Now, uh, Psalm 19, verse 7, says that the law of God is perfect. Well, the law of God would include all of the Word of God then. It says the law of God is perfect. If God's Word is health or medicine to all your flesh, and it's perfect, that means it will always work if it's applied correctly. God's Word will heal you. We need to settle that issue once and for all. God's word will heal you. It's not a chance. It's not a maybe so. It's not a well I hope so. It's not if God's in a good mood. God's word will heal you. And there's no restrictions on what uh, conditions the word of God will heal or what situations are too tough or anything like that. There's nothing too tough for God. God's word will heal you no matter what your condition is and no matter how long you've had it. No matter whether it's a great thing or a minor thing, whether it's a chronic thing or an every now and then thing, God's word will heal you because God's law is perfect. But medicine has to be applied. It wouldn't do you any good to go to the doctor and him say, well, I've got just the answer for your condition. Here's some pills. And these pills will fix you up. They'll restore you to where you won't even realize or remember that you even had this condition. Well, what good would it do for you to take the medicine, rejoice over having the answer, and put it on your bedside table and not not apply the medicine according to directions? Or what good would it do if the medicine instructs you to take it two times a day, two pills, once in the morning, once in the evening, and you take it a halfway or do half of what it says to do? Yet that's exactly what people do with the Word. They'll take what the Bible says. They'll hear the preaching of the word that God's word is medicine, life unto those that find it, to health or medicine to all their flesh. And they won't apply it. They won't apply the word. In other words, they won't apply the word in the means that that God created the word to be used. Now, what did God create his word to be used for? How did he create his word to be used? God's word creates pictures, images. When the Bible says, by Jesus' stripes you were healed, what do you see? You see Jesus on the cross. When the Bible says that Jesus died for your sins, what do you see? You don't see words, Jesus died for my sins, you see Jesus on the cross. When the Bible says that Jesus was raised from the dead, what do you see? You see him appearing to the disciples or you see him after he was raised. Words create pictures. God's words create the pictures that God wants you to live up to. When the Bible says that by Jesus' stripes you were healed, that's supposed to create a picture of you being well. Now, why is that important? Because out of the issues, uh, if we keep our heart with all diligence, as the Bible instructs us to, and why should we do that? Because it sets the boundaries for our lives. The picture of what you see yourself to be is the boundary that God has to work with, that God's Word has to work with to bring to pass. Let me read you a couple of scriptures uh, some of them from the Old Testament, but um, uh, about the importance of what we see and how we, how we operate. Job chapter 22, verse 28 says this. It says, Thou shalt also decree a thing, and it shall be established unto thee. 
Now, that's one of the things that the Bible talks about. Let the word not depart from your heart before your eyes. Keep it in the midst of your heart. We know that the only way to keep the word in the midst of your heart, we've seen from Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8. Forgive me if I'm jumping around on this. But like I said, it's not soup yet. But Joshua chapter 1 and verse 8 says, This book of the law, meaning the word of God, shall not depart out of your mouth. How do you keep something from departing out of your mouth? You have to keep saying it. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt meditate therein. Notice saying the word, speaking the word, confessing the word is a means of meditation. It's what the Bible connects with meditating in the word. But thou shalt meditate therein day and night, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Now, what does that mean? That means keep saying the word so that you see yourself with the answer. That means the, the whole purpose for speaking the word of God, confessing the word of God. It's not a ritual. It's not a, it's not a form. It's not say it a thousand times and then you'll have it. It's not some magic number that God has to fulfill once you hit the number. The whole purpose for confessing the word of God, speaking the word of God, is for you to, pick, to paint a picture or to accept the picture that the word of God paints for us to receive. But it's up to you. See, the word of God will paint the same picture for you as it will for me. And you might accept it or receive it. And I might reject it. Isn't that what Jesus is talking about when he gives us the parable of the sower sowing the word? He said the same word is preached. Some fell by the wayside and doesn't do any good whatsoever. Well, why not? Because the people didn't accept the, the picture that it painted. Another type of ground is the thorny ground or the stony ground is the next one, I guess. It says some fell among the stony ground and immediately it was received with gladness, but it didn't have any depth of earth. In other words, the picture was something people wanted to have. The picture that the word of God, the promises of God's word painted for them. They wanted to have it, but they didn't keep watering it. How do you water the word? But keeps continue to say. You continue to say the word, and that makes the picture stronger and stronger and stronger on the inside of you. The third type of ground is the, the, those, the, where it was sown among thorns. And it immediately began to produce. So that means they're taking care of it to some degree. They're continuing to confess the word, and that picture is getting bigger and bigger. The picture of God's promises is getting bigger and bigger on the inside of them. But then they get distracted. The cares of this world. The deceitfulness of riches and lust for other things enters in and chokes out the word and it becomes unfruitful. In other words, they get distracted and so they quit building upon the picture of God's promises in their heart. They don't keep their heart with all diligence. And so the boundaries are never established. But the good ground is the one, is the person that hears the word of God and keeps it. How do you keep it? By continuing to speak it. For what purpose? So that the picture gets bigger and bigger and stronger and stronger on the inside of you. So that you see yourself with what the odds word promises to you. And so they hear the word and keep it and bring forth fruit. Some 30 fold, some 60 fold and some 100 fold. Then Jesus after speaking about the parable explaining the parable. Went on to say that the whole kingdom of God. That means the healing you want, the prosperity that you need. Whatever it is that you have a desire for. Everything about the kingdom of God comes down to one simple principle. He said the whole of the kingdom of God is, is, is as if a man would plant seed in the ground and it should spring up 
and produce fruit. He doesn't even have to know how it works. He goes to sleep at night. He doesn't see a difference. Wakes up in the morning, doesn't see a difference. But sooner or later, it produces fruit. Now, what does he mean by planting seed in the ground? Well, he explained that the sower sows the word. So the seed is the word of God. And how does the sower sow it? By speaking. So Jesus is saying the whole of the kingdom of God is speaking the word of God into your own spirit. To what end? So that you see the picture of what God's word promises. So that you see the picture of what God's word promises. So that the picture of God's promises are built up on the inside of you to the end or to the result. To create the result of setting the boundaries for your life. Now, people pray for healing, but they talk sickness. So what's the boundary for their life? They see themselves sick. And people bless their hearts. They complain about us faith people. They complain about us that say just confess the word. Well, we're not saying confess the word for the purpose of entering into some ritual or some form or something like that. Again, the purpose for confessing the word is to build the picture of God's word on the inside of you. So that the picture that God's promise paints is bigger on the inside of you than how the the physical circumstances appear. You've got to overcome the picture of failure on the inside of you. You've got to overcome the picture of sickness on the inside of you. Well, what's going to overcome those pictures that we see ourselves, the way that we see ourselves? There's only one thing that can do it, and that's the Word of God. But if you'll build the right picture on the inside of you, God's Word will heal you every time. Because the law of God is perfect. Bless people's hearts. They'll say, well, I tried that faith stuff and it doesn't work. What is that faith stuff? Really, when you think about it, what does that faith stuff come down to? It comes down to building God's word, the image of God's word on the inside of us. So when people say that faith stuff doesn't work, what are they saying? They're saying, I never built that picture on the inside of me. I'm going to blame God for it because, of course, I can't be at fault, but I never built that picture on the inside of me. The picture of, God, of healing that's promised by God's word Never got stronger than the image that I saw of myself being sick. That's what they're saying. Now, they wouldn't admit saying that because then that puts the responsibility over on them. And most Christians don't want any responsibility, in my opinion. It's a very small percentage of Christians that really want to do the work and produce the fruit that the Bible says they can have. In the parable of Jesus... That Jesus gave us the sower so in the word. Only 25% of the people produced any fruit. And of those one third. Of the 25% which would be 8% produced 100 fold fruit. I think those percentages are pretty close. So you got, nine, you got 75% of the church world. By and large that doesn't want any responsibility whatsoever. They just want to sit back and pray for God to work things out. But remember how God works. Psalm 107 verse 20 says, and he sent his word and healed them. He sent his word and healed them. He sent his word and healed them. He didn't say, the Bible doesn't say he sent his word and will heal you. The Bible says he sent his word and healed you. In other words, the fact that he speaks in the past tense creates a picture that you have the opportunity to accept or reject. But the picture is one of success when it comes to sickness and healing. How many believers do you know that accept that picture? Unfortunately, it's a small minority. So back to some of these scriptures. 
Job chapter 22, verse 28, Thou shalt decree a thing, and it shall be established unto thee, and the light shall shine upon thy ways. In other words, what you say goes. What you say goes. Proverbs chapter 18, and verse 7, says, A fool's mouth is his destruction, and his lips are the snare of his soul. Those words are important. Why? Because words create pictures on the inside of us. Proverbs 16 verse 9 says, A man's heart devises his way. The word devises there means to plan or to figure or to, um, uh, to imagine. A man's heart, his spirit, imagines his way. He sees himself a certain way and he imagines what's going to happen. But the Lord directs his steps. Proverbs 18, verse 20 and 21, it says, A man's belly shall be satisfied with the fruit of his mouth. In other words, it's saying your body will be influenced by your words. Your body will be influenced by your words. A man's belly shall be satisfied with the fruit of his mouth, and with the increase of his lips shall he be filled. In other words, he's saying prosperity comes from words. Why? Because death and life are in the power of the tongue. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. Now, why would God create the tongue to have such power? Death and life are in the power of the tongue. It doesn't say the power of life and death are in the tongue. It says death and life are in the power of the tongue. In other words, the tongue is the one that has power. It can be used positively toward life, meaning the blessings of God and all the things that the Word promises you. Or it can be used negatively toward death, So that even though Jesus died and finished the work for you to have exactly what the word says he brought for you, you never receive it. Why? Because death and life are in the power of the tongue. Keep your heart with all diligence for out of it. Though the issues are boundaries of life. In other words, your words establish the boundaries for what you're going to have in life. Folks, it's a simple saying, but if you don't like what you've got, Change what you're saying. That won't work overnight because pictures aren't built overnight. Pictures aren't built on the inside of us. Our spirit is not made to accept instantly. It's something that comes through work. It's something that comes through diligence. That's why the Bible says keep your heart with all diligence. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a try it and see how it goes. Death and life are in the power of the tongue. And they that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. James chapter 3 and verse 6 says, The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So the tongue, so is the tongue among our members, that it defiles the whole body. Notice the tongue defiles the whole body. Well, if that's true, then that would be true where sickness is concerned. Then. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. So the tongue is among our members, that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and is set on fire of hell. In other words... The number one way that the devil's going to attack you is through your mouth. He's going to work harder to get you to speak the wrong things than any other thing that he does. Every circumstance, every bit of trouble that he stirs up in your life is designed for one and only one thing, and that is to get you to say things contrary to the word of God. Why? Because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. The more you talk trouble, the bigger the picture of trouble grows on the inside of you. You're establishing trouble as the boundaries for your life. You're establishing failure as the boundaries of your life. You're establishing sickness as the boundaries of your life. And as a man thinks in his heart, 
so is he. Those words will come to pass. Now, folks, the devil knows how this works, even though the church world, by and large, doesn't. The devil knows how this works. The devil knows that death and life are in the power of the tongue. So he's working overtime to get you speaking death. He's, getting, he's working overtime to get you thinking death. Every time something good happens, he wants to follow it up with something bad. And what happens? So many Christians say, well, every time something good happens, man, trouble's right on the heels. So what picture is built on the inside of them? I can't ever get ahead. Success, any minor success is always followed up with a terrible failure. So they see themselves as failures. So what happens? Their words come to pass. They live up to the picture of failure that they have on the inside of them. Folks, this is not rocket science. If God made this only to be understood by intelligent people, then I, me and a couple other people would be the only ones to get it. No, the fact is he made this simple enough for me to get it too. It's just the way it works. It's the way it's designed. It's the way you're created. Proverbs 21 verse 23 says, Whoso keepeth his mouth and his tongue keepeth his soul from troubles. That's pretty plain. Isaiah 57, 19, I love this one. It says, I create the fruit of the lips. Here's God speaking first person. You say it and I'll make it. I create the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to him that is far off and to him that is near, saith the Lord, and I will heal him. Healing comes with the fruit of your lips. Proverbs 10 verse 11 says, The mouth of a righteous man is a well of life. Why does the Bible say so much about your tongue, about the words that you speak? Because that's the way that your spirit sets the boundaries for your life. Proverbs 12, 6 says, The mouth of the upright shall deliver them. Proverbs 12, verse 14 says, A man shall be satisfied with good by the fruit of his mouth. Folks, there is absolutely, if you know what the Bible says, there is absolutely no reason for any Christian to complain about why bad things happen to me. Proverbs 12, verse 18 says, The tongue of the wise is health. Wise people talk health. Proverbs 13, verse 3 says, He that keepeth his mouth keepeth his life. Proverbs 14, verse 3 says, The lips of the wise shall preserve them. Proverbs 15, 4 says, The wholesome tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness therein is a breach in spirit. Let me read this to you from the Amplified. A gentle tongue with its healing power is a tree of life, but willful contrariness in it, the tongue, breaks down the spirit. Saying the same thing. Keep your heart with all diligence. For out of it flow the issues, the boundaries of life. Proverbs 16, verse 23, it says, The heart of the wise teaches his mouth and addeth learning to his lips. Notice your spirit teaches your lips, teaches your mouth, teaches your words, provides words for you to speak. Your heart, your spirit is the source or should be the source for the words that you speak. Proverbs 16, verse 24 says, Pleasant words are as honeycomb. And sweet to the soul and health to the bones. Now let me ask you a question. What does it mean 
when the Bible says that Jesus, John wrote to us and said, the word was made flesh and dwelt among us. The word was made flesh and dwelt among us. What does that mean? Does that mean God's word and pr- that promised the Messiah came to pass and so Jesus lived? He was born on the earth and lived among us. Is that what that means? Was Jesus just the word made flesh in his birth? Or was Jesus the word made flesh when in his life? Well, remember what he said of himself. He said, the words that I speak unto you, I don't speak of myself. But I, the Father gives me the words to say, I do them. And then he went further and said, the things that I do, or I only do, the things that I see my Father do. In other words, Jesus is saying, my life is based on what I see and hear from God. Now, how did Jesus see God? Did Jesus have some kind of special link to where whenever he shut his eyes, he could just see over into heaven? Well, if so, he didn't lay aside his heavenly power and glory like the Bible says he did. If so, he didn't operate as a man like the Bible says that he did. If Jesus operated as a man the way that he said that he did, then that means he didn't have any special insight or ability to see into heaven any more than you and I do. Now, is it possible for a man to see over into heaven? Well, in a specific sense, yeah, if the Holy Ghost manifests himself in discerning of spirits because discerning of spirits literally means seeing over into the spirit realm so is that possible for somebody to do yeah well if it does happen for somebody how often does it happen for somebody well the examples we have in the new testament you see it happening once in people's lives for the entirety of their lives so it's not an oftentimes thing Now, is it possible that Jesus saw into heaven? Well, I believe he did. I believe there were occasions where he did. But when Jesus says, I only do the things that I see my father do, he's saying, I only do what I see of my father in the word. See, Jesus saw God the same way that you and I see God, through his word. And the word is a revelation, was then, is now. It's a revelation of who God is, his character and his nature, his actions and his will. It's a revelation of who God is. You'll never know God apart from his word. Now, that's the problem that so much of the church world has because you've heard in church perhaps all your life, I know I grew up hearing this, well, you never know what God wills. Well, if you never know, what's the point? What are we studying the Bible for? If the Bible is not the revealed will of God, now that's what they told us. They taught us in Sunday school, the Bible is the revealed will of God. But then they turn around and say, well, you never know what God wants to do. They'd pray for somebody's healing. Lord, if it be your will, heal them. Now the implication there, and they never said the last part, but the implication there is, if it's not your will, just let them die. Let them learn their lesson. Whatever it is you're trying to teach them. Because that's what they told us. Sometimes God made people sick trying to teach them something. Sometimes God had some unknown, unseen purpose behind it. Well, if that's the case, then why are people praying to get well? Some of the same people that are standing up and testifying in church saying, well, God gave me this disease to teach me something. God has some greater plan involved in this. They'd turn in a prayer request. And even as a kid, I couldn't figure out, well, if God gave it to you, why are you trying to get rid of it? Now, what this all comes down to, folks, is something very simple, and that is they rejected the church that I grew up in, the teaching that they, they trained me, the, the training they tried to give to me, took for a little while, but not too long. But the training of the church that I grew up in was a rejection of the will of God as revealed in the Word. 
they would not accept what the Word of God says. They rejected the Bible and the Scripture that says, by Jesus' stripes you were healed. They rejected the part of the Scripture that says, Jesus took your infirmities and bore your sicknesses. They accepted the forgiveness of sins part. But they rejected the part, the same verse, that says he was wounded for your transgressions, he was bruised for your iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. They rejected the healing part. So here they are trying to get answers from God and not being able to explain why they can't get answers from God when they're rejecting the will of God as revealed in his word. In other words, they accepted the part of the picture that they wanted. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. Well, they thought according to forgiveness of sins, but not according to healing. So what happened? Well, we had rededication services almost every Sunday morning. People would come to the altar and rededicate their lives to the Lord. Same people that rededicated their lives last Sunday would come down and rededicate their lives this Sunday if they had a tough week. And the church was riddled with sickness because they lived up to the picture of Jesus and salvation that they had painted through their own choices, not through the Word. They rejected the picture of the Word but accepted a picture that they created for themselves and preached their picture. They not only wanted to have the picture of Jesus for themselves, they wanted you to have that picture too. And if you ever raised the question, and I remember when I was a teenager, I went to the, uh, the youth leader, the Baptist church that I was a part of, had been a part of since I was a kid. My mother had gotten filled with the Holy Ghost, and so I went to him and I asked a question. I said, I need to know what, you t- what the church believes about being filled with the Holy Ghost and speaking with other tongues. Well, he said that he had to talk to the pastor about it and he'd get back with me. Well, by the time he got back with me the next week, it had gotten all over the church that I was questioning speaking in tongues and they pretty much let me know that if that was my position, I wasn't welcome. I'm 14 years old. They never did answer a question. Somebody intimated that it was of the devil. It got all through the youth group. And one of the other youth in the, in the group said, well, you know, that speaking in tongues is of the devil. So I hit him right in the mouth. I said, my mother speaks in tongues. Well, I'm not sure he changed his position, but at least he didn't say it anymore. So it, it, it became a real issue. I mean, the whole church started looking at me sideways. And all I did was ask, what does the Bible say? What does the church believe about speaking in tongues? My mother speaks in tongues, and I don't know. I mean, where are you supposed to go? It's a 14-year-old kid. Where are you supposed to go? Church leaders are supposed to have the answers. They said they did, but they never gave me one on that. That was a turning point in my life. I realized these people that talk about how they love me and all this kind of stuff didn't really love me like they said they did. They loved me as long as I agreed with their picture. But once I asked a question, didn't even have to express an opinion about it. Once I asked a question that went crossways with their picture, now I'm not so welcome anymore. Folks, words create pictures. God's word is designed to create a picture on the inside of you. And you'll have whatever the word says that you choose to have the picture of. Well, back to the question I asked you. What does it mean when it says Jesus is the word made flesh? If he said he only spoke the word of God or spoke what God says, which would be the word of God, and he only did what he saw God do in the word, 
then that means Jesus, as the Word made flesh, is living the Word. Turn over with me to John chapter 15. John chapter 15. Here's something the Lord brought to my attention here recently, and this is the part that's not soup yet. I feel like I'm jumping all around and not without any specific direction, but hope you're getting something out of it anyway. John chapter 15, verse 7. Jesus said, if you abide in me, what does that mean? The word abide means live, live on. If you abide in me, if you live on in me. Well, he's got to be talking about salvation because you can't abide in him unless you're saved. That's what brings you into the family of God. But he's going to also be talking about fellowship because you can't live on in him without continued fellowship. You know as well as I do that somebody can get saved and live outside of fellowship with God. They use salvation as fire insurance. They don't want to go to hell. And so they use salvation as fire insurance, but then they live their own life apart from the word, apart from the plan of God, apart from fellowship and prayer or anything like that. So when Jesus says, if you abide in me, he's talking about continued fellowship as a member of his family, isn't he? Would you consider anything else to to meet the qualifications of abiding in him? It has to be what he means. So he's talking about, if you come into my family and walk in fellowship with me, And here's the second part. And my word abides in you. Now, again, the word abides means lives on in you. Now, how can the word live on in you if you're not being a doer of the word? How can the word of God live on in you if you're not accepting or receiving what the word says is yours to be true? Is it possible to abide in him and not accept the word of God to be true? I'm sorry, is it possible for the word to to abide in you and not accept what the word says about you and what belongs to you? I know a lot of people would try to make the argument, people that aren't in fellowship with God would make the argument that the word is abiding in them because they once read it. But you know as well as I do that that's not what Jesus is talking about. Jesus is talking about being a doer of the word. He's talking about meditating in the word. Jesus knows what the Old Testament commandments are. Jesus knows that Joshua 1.8 says to let the word of God not depart from your mouth, but meditate therein day and night. That's what he's talking about. He's talking about living according to the word, being a doer thereof, acting on the word, using the word of God as your answer and your guide and your direction for everything in life. Isn't that what he's doing as the word made flesh here on the earth? Well, he said, I only say what my father says. In other words, he's saying, I only speak God's word. He says, I only do what I see my father do. Where do you see him doing it, Jesus? In the word. Jesus saw the same picture of God revealed in the word that you and I see. Isn't he talking about the same thing? He'd have to be, wouldn't he? So he said, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Those are the conditions. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, then what's the result? Then you shall ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. Now, the word ask is not the word ask as we think of. It doesn't mean ask like ask in prayer. This is the same word that's used over in John chapter 14, verse 14, uh, or verse 13, rather. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. It means to call for or require. It means to place a demand on something. 
In other words, when you write a check, used to say on, on checks, I haven't seen one in a long time, but checks used to be printed up where on the signature line it would say something like pay to the demand of or pay to the order of. When you write a check because of the financial arrangement, legal arrangement, legal agreement that you have with your bank, your check is a demand on money that you have on deposit. It has nothing to do with feelings. It has nothing to do with attitude. It has to do with a legal arrangement. That's what this is talking about. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. If you live on in fellowship with me and my word lives on in fellowship with you. If you're a doer of the word. If you live by the word. Then you shall put a demand on whatever you will. And it will be done for you. Now. Are we doing any disservice to the word to say that if, to say that Jesus is saying, if you become the word made flesh, then you'll ask what you will, and it shall be done unto you. I know that's tough to swallow, saying it that way. But isn't that what it means? See, this is the thing that the Lord spoke to me a little while back. And it's been hard for me to accept. But the Lord talked to me about the word, me being the word made flesh. Well, that was something I'd always reserve for just Jesus. But why? Why do we just reserve that for Jesus? Isn't that what God wants for you and me? Doesn't he want you to be a doer of the word? Now, I, granted, and I fall into this category too. I'm more comfortable saying I'm a doer of the word than by saying I'm the word made flesh. But isn't the word made flesh mean God's word comes to pass in your life to recreate you as a human being, as a new creature in Christ Jesus, just like it made Jesus a human being through an immaculate conception, virgin birth? What's the difference? The means, the method? But you're just as much a creation of God through the new birth as Jesus was being born of a virgin, aren't you? Are you out there? Are you afraid to respond? Do you see where I'm going with this? Doesn't the Bible say that if any man be, is in Christ, then he's a new creation? Well, who's he created by? By God. Then when you make Jesus the Lord of your life, when you confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you become the Word made flesh. The word does a work in you to make you a new creature in Christ Jesus. Then if you become a doer of the words where you commit yourself to the word, meditate therein to make it a part of your heart, write the word of God into your spirit through your words and do it, then doesn't that make you the word made flesh? Did Jesus make any distinction between himself and his disciples when it came to doing the works? Now, remember the works Jesus did. He said, I only do what I see my father do. And then he commissioned his his disciples to go and do the same works that he did. And he said, because I'm going to my father, the works that I do shall you do also, and even greater works than these shall you do. In other words, he's saying, when I go to my father, that's the, the resurrection. He's saying, when I go to my father, I'm going to make a way 
a means whereby you can do exactly the same work as me. If you're not as righteous as Jesus was when he did the works, that'd be impossible. Now, I know we're not comfortable and and we're not used to thinking in those terms, but that's what the Bible says. Part of our problem is we don't let the Bible make the pictures for our lives. We kind of filter the pictures of God's word through what we're willing to accept. But God has designed every one of his children to be the word made flesh. The Bible says you're Christ here on the earth. Doesn't it? Now, it doesn't say you're a type of Christ. It doesn't say you're an illustration of Christ. It says you're Christ here on the earth. Just as Jesus said he was the light of the world, he said you're the light of the world. Why doesn't he make a distinction? Because his life is your life. That's not a parallel track here, folks. It's the same track. You died the same death Jesus died. You experienced the same resurrection as Jesus. This is one that blows most people's mind. You experienced the same new birth that Jesus did. See, the Bible says that Jesus was made sin, and when he was made sin, he went into the heart of the earth and paid the price for all of mankind's sins. Jesus died spiritually. Had to. If he didn't, the Bible says the wages of sin is death. If Jesus didn't die spiritually, somebody still has to die for your sin. It wasn't Jesus' physical death that did the job. Because man's problem wasn't solved by physical death. Man's problem was spiritual death. And so a a, a spirit had to die to pay the price for your death and mine. Jesus had to die spiritually. Well, if Jesus died spiritually, how is he alive and at the right hand of God now? The Bible says he was the firstborn among many brethren. That means he was the first person born again. Now, does Jesus have a different born-again experience than you have? If so, then the Bible's a lie. Because Jesus said the same life that we have is the life that he has. He said that he wanted us to be united and joined together with the Father in union with the Father in the same way that he was in union with the Father. That means same life. So your new birth experience is the same as Jesus. Now, here's the, here's the thing you need to realize. Jesus paid the price. He laid his life down, physically and spiritually. He laid his life down to pay the price for sin once and for all. Well, what was the price for sin? Death, spiritual death. Remember in the Garden of Eden, God told Adam, in the day that you eat thereof, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, in the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. He's not talking about physical death. He's talking about spiritual death. So man's penalty was spiritual death. He died spiritually. He became separated and estranged from God. Jesus has to pay the price for that. Well, what is the price for that? His spirit offered as a sacrifice, a one-time sacrifice for all of mankind. A righteous spirit being eternally separated from God. That's why in hell, the Bible says in Psalm 72, Jesus cried out and said, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, Jesus said that on the cross, but he lifted up his eyes in hell, the Bible says, knowing that it was too late for him to do anything. While he was on the cross, he could have called the angels to get him down. He even told the two thieves that. 
I could call the angels and get me down from here. Why? Because I haven't done anything wrong. I'm a righteous man. But once he was made death, he lost the right to take his body back up again. He lost the right to his own life. See, folks, what Jesus offered for you is a whole lot more than what the church has ever told us he did. Jesus put himself in the ultimate predicament. Eternity hung in the balance. That's why the devil thought he won. The devil thought he'd gotten Jesus in a position that there was no escape from. And that was spiritual death. He thought God had overplayed his hand. Because now Jesus is spiritually dead, paying the price for all of mankind, and there is no return from spiritual death. Nobody has ever been raised from the dead spiritually. The devil didn't know that that was even possible. But the Bible says that when Jesus was, uh, had paid the price, there came a moment in time, a literal moment in time, that Jesus had paid the entirety of man's penalty that the life of God came back upon Jesus. What happened? He was born again. In that sense, he didn't earn it. He got it by the, by the plan of God, just like you and I gained salvation and righteousness by the plan of God. His new birth is your new birth. His life is your life. Who is he now? Seated at the right hand of the Father. He's the Word made flesh. He's the Word made flesh. The Bible says when Jesus appeared to his disciples after the resurrection, he stuck out his hands and said, handle me. A spirit has not flesh and bones as I have. He didn't say flesh and blood. His blood was emptied out. But he said a spirit has not flesh and bones. Jesus is saying, I've got flesh and bones. So who is he? He's the Word made flesh. Who are you and I supposed to be? The Word made flesh. That's what John fifteen seven is saying. If I'm, if I'm hearing from the Holy Ghost, that's what John fifteen seven is saying. If you abide in me and my word abides in you, if you're the word made flesh, here's the result. You shall call for or require or demand whatever you will and it shall be done for you. You know how the Bible says, I know I'm over time, so let me, let me close up with this real quick. You know how the Bible talks about God restores my soul? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He leaves me beside the still waters, he restoreth my soul. Well, the New Testament talks about that. In James chapter 1, verse 21, he says, Wherefore, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. I hate that translation. But basically what it comes down to is separate yourself from all the things of the world that would hold you back. Well, what things of the world hold us back? Well, we know sin does. We know wickedness does. But doesn't the world's way of thinking hold you back too? Doesn't the world's way of operating hold you back too? Doesn't the world's picture of failure and Satan, who's the God of this world, doesn't he have an impact and an influence on us through the world and through the physical realm? Sure he does. Well, the Bible is saying lay those things aside and receive with meekness the engrafted word. The word engrafted means implanted word. Now, who is James writing to? He's writing to the church. He's writing to Christians. That's why he can say the word's been planted in them because if the word hadn't been planted in them, they couldn't have been born again. So he says, lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness. Set aside all the things of the world and the world's influences. And receive, your choice, receive, talking to saved people, receive with meekness the engrafted or implanted word which is able to save your souls. Now remember where we started over in 3 John 2? Beloved, I wish or pray above all things that you may prosper and be in health even as your soul 
prosperous. In other words, he's saying separate all the world's influences and receive or accept the picture that God's word paints. Because that will change your mind. That will change your thoughts. That will change your emotions. That will change everything about you to bring you back into the place of restoration. Paul said it this way in Romans chapter 12 and verse 2. He said, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. I love that word transformed. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind that you may prove or experience what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Now, the word renewal is interesting to me because it means reversal by repetition. And notice what he said. He said that it transforms you. It transforms you from the natural man to the spiritual man. If he's restoring our soul, if he's saving our soul, if he's restoring our minds or restoring us to our original position, what is it that God's trying to get us back to? He's trying to get us back to what Adam was, which was the word made flesh and the authority they had here on the earth. And folks, again, if I'm understanding and interpreting what the Holy Ghost is saying correctly, you decide for yourself. John fifteen seven is saying exactly that. If you abide in me and my words abide in you. If you become the word made flesh. How? By accepting the pictures that the word paints. Then you shall ask what you will. You call for and require whatever you will. And it shall be done for you of my father which is in heaven. Your words count. Your words decide. But you have to be the one that receives it. You have to be the one that accepts it. As a man thinketh in his heart. So is he. Again, that word thinketh means to act as the gatekeeper or doorkeeper. You have to choose. You choose what picture you'll see yourself. You choose whether you'll see yourself as well or sick. You choose whether you see yourself as successful or a failure. You choose whether you see yourself as prosperous or poor. You choose. And folks, that's what confessing the word is all about. It's about building and strengthening the right pictures on the inside of us. Because if we do that, if we give attention to our spirits and put the right picture, build the right picture on the inside of us through God's word and through the confession of God's word, out of our spirits flow the issues or the boundaries of life. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that you sent your word and healed us. You didn't promise to heal us. You told us that you sent your word and healed us. Father, we recognize that Jesus was the word made flesh. Because he spoke your word and operated according to what your word reveals that you do. And he told us to do the same thing, Lord. He told us to follow his example. Thank you, Father, that as doers of your word, we can accept and receive the word of God that was sent to heal us, sent for us and caused us to be healed, the finished work of Jesus, and build that picture on the inside of us that will overcome any and every sickness and disease. The world may call it incurable, but nothing's incurable for you. Thank you, Father, that you sent your word and healed us. And as we build the picture of healing and health on the inside of us, it affects every part of our bodies. The life of God flows through our bloodstream. It permeates every fiber of our being. It infuses every cell of our bodies to drive out sickness and disease. Oh, Father, thank you that your word is true. We therefore declare that we are healed by the stripes of Jesus. We are healed by the stripes of Jesus, no matter what it looks like, no matter what the doctor says, no matter what anybody says or how we feel. 
We declare that your word is true. Therefore, we are healed by the stripes of Jesus. Amen. If you can agree with that, say amen. Amen. Well, God bless you. Hope you got something from this tonight. Thanks for being with us.